You are listening to a sermon from the season of Lent at Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, visit us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. Okay, well, we're here. We've arrived at the last Sunday of Lent, which starts our final week of Lent. When we pass through these doors uh, next, we'll start a Holy Week journey with our Savior into Jerusalem, into the upper room for the mystical supper, up Golgotha, down to Hades with him as we wait for its plundering, and then we'll celebrate the plundering, won't we? I'm looking forward to that. The destruction of death through our King's death, his indestructible life bursting forth and flipping the script and giving us a living hope, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us who live by faith in him, who are in communion with the Lord of life, the second Adam who flips the script to show us what what the real script has always said. But we do have this week of Lent left. And the gospel reading from St. Luke meets us at this penultimate point up the mountain and confronts us with a hard, beautiful story, the very story we need at this point of our journey. It's a harrowing story because, you know, with the tenants and the messengers representing the prophets being sent through the years, the faithlessness of the keepers of the vineyard, the final sending of the son, the heir, the killing of the son, thinking, oh, that's how we can get the vineyard for ourselves. And, of course, the, right, the, the response of the owner of the vineyard to give it to others. It's a harrowing story because the listeners, the Jewish leaders, the listeners, are actually characters in the story. That'd be weird, right? they are being told how this ends. And rather than humbly being broken, they finish our gospel reading, waiting for a chance to take the next tragic step in the tragic story they just heard. It reminds me a bit of this family feud that happens in Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, uh, which I I get to teach every year to my American literature class. Um, The the main character, Huck, is on this journey down the Mississippi, and he he gets washed up. He gets run through by a steamboat, and he gets washed up onto shore. And when he gets up onto shore, everybody greets, this family greets him in the middle of the night with guns. They all have guns. Even, like, the 12-year-old has a gun. He's, like, dragging the gun behind him in the middle of the night like you would a teddy bear at that age. But he's dragging a gun. And the next day, uh, you know, Huck goes out with this kid his age named Buck. And while they're out, the, the kid tries to shoot another guy riding on a horse. And Huck is like, what is going on? When they get back home, he was like, what was that all about? You know, were you actually trying to hit him? And Buck said, well, yeah, of course. And (laughs) Huck said, well, what what in the world? You know, did he do something to you? And, uh, you know, Buck says, well, no. He says, but it's on account of the feud. And Huck says, what's a feud? And Buck basically is like, well, you've been living under a rock. You don't know what a feud is in this world. Like, you know, a feud is where families, you know, start fighting over something, and then they just try to kill each other off. And... And, 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 like, and Huck says, well, what, what's, what are you guys fighting over? He's like, I don't know. Maybe the old people remember it. Some lawsuit happened years ago. But you just fight each other. And Huck says, well, how does it end? Like, how's the feud end? And, and Buck says, well, eventually just everyone kills each other off. And then the feud ends. <laughs> and it's, it's such dark humor, right? Because this is how some feuds work out. And this is how this one works out. A few pages later, there's a giant bloodbath, and all, they're all killed. And Huck 
escapes, and that's the feud. <laughs> and it's like Buck knew that story even as he said it, right? Um, I would have said spoiler alert, but like when a book's put out 140 years, like there's got to be a statute of limitations on spoilers. So, but anyway, like the, you, you can enjoy the rest of the book. That's just a little section. But you know, it's it's odd to know how a tragic story ends uh, and to keep playing your tragic part. But we get so entrenched in our normal, our pride, our perspective that we miss reality and truth and the way of healing. And the Jewish leaders listening to this story know what the tenant's path leads to. They, like Buck, know where this leads. They were not confused by Jesus' words. They and and we are sometimes confused by Jesus' parables. This was one that did not confuse them because Jesus uses imagery and quotations familiar in the Hebrew scriptures. From the Torah, Israel knew they were tenants in the land, designated to care for it and be set apart in it. That was the plan. And to offer up the fruit of the land to God, especially the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, the fruit of a heart beating for him and for his priorities, a light for the nations, for the Gentiles. And from the prophets, Israel knew God's people were called his vineyard. And they knew that vineyard had failed to bear right fruit through the years. So example from Isaiah 5, it says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So they knew of the vineyard and the high stakes and the past failures and the patience of God. And from that same prophet Isaiah, they knew that God is, quote, the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And from Isaiah, again, they knew this, that the Lord of hosts will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. That's from Isaiah 8. You hear all the same language of our parable today. It's through all these scriptures. And Jesus tells him a story with all these words and images in one place. Tenants, a vineyard, a planter, fruit, a cornerstone, stumbling on the stone, broken. It's all there today. And Jesus' listeners were outraged at the tenants in the story. You know, we read St. Luke's account, but in St. Matthew's account of this same parable, after those tenants cast the son out of the vineyard to kill him, Jesus asks his listeners in that account what the owner of the vineyard will do to those tenants when he comes. And Jesus' listeners in that account reply, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them their fruits in the seasons. So they know what the tenants deserve. They know the outrage. Kill the son and think you can have the vineyard apart from the heir himself? I mean, they know such tenants would need to be replaced. But in a few days... They will take Jesus outside Jerusalem. They will take him to join the Romans in killing him outside the vineyard. They'll act out the very climax of this story. And in our gospel reading, they express outrage that God will give the vineyard to others. But as I said in Matthew's account, they already know this is right. In Luke's account, they're crying, surely not. And in the other account, they're like, surely that's what you got to do. And such is the splitness of our hearts. We know what's true but we turn and deny. We're told an outrageous story, then we go act it out. We fail to face the truth. We, like the families in Huck Finn, are in danger of playing out the predicted mess 
to the bitter end. For instance, we know bitterness is poison, and we keep our grudges. We know the way up is through humility, and we keep our pride. We know Jesus calls us to take up the cross, and we choose our comforts. We know a God waits for us to turn to him every moment, and we choose our distractions. We know there's no life outside of Christ, but we keep turning every which way. We get outraged at a story and fail to see we are the antagonists, that we're the problem, that our own hearts need healing. So the owner must give the care of the vineyard to others. And this is the part of Jesus' message his listeners could not abide. You know, that these promises, this vineyard would be given to the church. They didn't want to believe that they were the problem, that their whole eternity would be defined, and our whole eternity will be defined, by their reaction to the sun, this air, this true vine standing in front of them and graciously telling them the truth they need to hear, that they're in serious trouble, that they're the ones with the problem. I mean, they thought the Romans are the problem with God's vineyard, right? I mean, they're the reason it's trampled and unfruitful. Or maybe the bad Jews are the problem. Those tax collectors and prostitutes, others who are not keeping Torah. Messiah will deal with this, right? He will come and obliterate the Romans and restore our autonomy and cast out the sinners, right? But the true Messiah comes and offers the kingdom to the Romans and other Gentiles. And the true Messiah comes and tells the adulterous woman, neither do I condemn you. And the true Messiah comes and, and he feasts with tax collectors, and he calls one of them to be one of the twelve. And the true Messiah comes and says, no, no, my body is the temple, actually. And the true Messiah comes and makes a cross the place where we see God most clearly. And they're given a wake-up call in the person and teaching of the Messiah himself. He's right in front of them. The heir and beloved son, sent to give them another chance. And they bristle, and they plot, but not all of them. Some heard this wake-up call. Nicodemus comes by night. He eventually hears. Joseph of Arimathea hears and offers his fresh tomb to be the scene of life's great victory. Saul of Tarsus hears the voice on the road to Damascus, and he sees the light, and he experiences the judgment of the way, the truth, the life he thought he'd been fighting for, but he'd actually been fighting against. And that confrontation for Saul was a judgment, for this is what true judgment is. It's, it's seeing Christ for who he truly is, and who he truly is becomes a mirror to see our own disorderedness. It's always uncomfortable to us and a sort of judgment to have an experience of true beauty, to see the one who defines true humanity, like these listeners in our story, with, with true, the second true Adam right in front of them, and for us this morning. This mirror is uncomfortable. To look to Christ, this is uncomfortable. It is always a call to repentance. Always a call to repentance, to be confronted with ourselves, to see ourselves truly. Another story I teach in American literature is, uh, is The Grapes of Wrath by Steinbeck. And, and in that story, there's, there's a real tragic character, this Uncle John uh, in this family that's homeless now and on the move west to California. And John, when he was a younger man um, and he was newly married, his wife complained to him one night that her stomach was hurting. And he kind of told her to, you know, whatever, suck it up, we'll, 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 whatever, get a good night's sleep, you just have a gut ache. And in the morning she died. It was appendicitis. And he lives the rest of his life in this toxic shame cycle. And 
um, where he tries to kind of make it right again in the world and you pay it back. And he's, he's always the nephew's and niece's favorite uncle because he's always giving them money and candy. And anyone gets a tad bit sick, he's rushing doctors out to him. And he, he's in this sort of just shame cycle. And later on in the book, someone traveling with the family sees that the family's in trouble. They're about to have their key son arrested falsely. And this guy lays himself down. His name's Casey. He lays himself down Christ-like for the family. Takes the blame, goes to jail. Just does it. And John had been dealing through his life with his shame, either by trying to make it up, or he would just glut on like alcohol and sex and whatever. Like he would, he would always be in the cycle of great purity and then just great binging. He was just in that shame cycle. And when he, throughout the book, we don't see him turn to alcohol, but that moment when he saw Casey do that beautiful thing for his family, he tells them, I've got, I've got to have alcohol tonight. Now, he's been going through all kinds of stuff in the book. I mean, he's lost parents in the book. They're homeless. He lost his farm. They're on the road. They're seeing terrible things. He never turns to alcohol. Someone does something beautiful for his family, Christ-like, right in front of him, and he doesn't feel like he can get through the night without alcohol. And I always ask my students the night after that reading, why is it that that's the time he has to turn to alcohol? And the conversation we have there is crazy. And what I'm really trying to get at is this right here, that true judgment is confronting beauty and truth. It shows us ourself. And we can either turn or we can escape, some, we can escape that judgment. Just, you know, some outlet, some turning away to something else. So and that's what's happening here. So, some of the Jesus listeners, you know, some of Jesus' listeners in, this, in his ministry accept the judgment. They see the mirror. And they let it be a wake-up call that drives them to the one whose story can be joined to theirs, as we've been talking about all through Lent, and make them new and rewrite the very code of their hearts. Saul gets the wake-up call, and he breaks, and he turns, and he becomes St. Paul. And Lent is always meant to be a giant wake-up call for all of us, sort of a judgment, where we, let, where we turn and we let Christ show himself to us. Let Christ become a mirror to see our own lack And that same Christ who is our judge invites us through this judgment to enter in with him in his story. And this invitation, this judgment, this moment of truth, this gracious confrontation is is right here for us, right here, right now, last Sunday of Lent. If Lent's feeling long, that's probably a good thing. Okay. And if you feel like you've not fully engaged the season, that you still have so much repenting left to do, I mean, you're probably right. And Lent reminds us that our story only works when we're joined with Christ's story. It's the only time it works. Our life is only alive when we're abiding in this life, in his life. We get hard parables like today. And we get the failure of two sons like last week. And Father Jeremy preached about that famous passage. But we also get a cornerstone today. And we also get a father last week who runs out to meet us regardless of whether our repentance is full or theologically perfect. So today is the day of salvation. You know, I haven't had a perfect week. Maybe you have. I don't know. I, I've, I've felt thrown a thousand directions in life right now. Um, and like I come up short in a thousand ways. And like I can't do this life thing on my own. And I'm right. <laughs> I can't. And today is my day of salvation. And today's yours. And our Savior waits to see us face to face. There is no avoiding this cornerstone. This glorious Christ who upholds all reality by the word of his power, who's the way, the truth, and the life. 
I want you to think of that image at the end of the parable of a cornerstone. A cornerstone. Do you have that in your head? That's what Christ is called here. The cornerstone. This stumbling block. Such a hefty, defining stone will crush what ignores it. Such great reality, such great truth and beauty will have its effect. It always does. Such beauty and love will crush those who do not perceive love as love. Love always does this. We, we know this in our own relationships. I mean, parents know this for sure. We can extend love and correction to our children and see when their hearts are turned from it. And we hurt over the turmoil that our love can cause when it's received with a hard heart. The love keeps flowing, but the child receives the love as fire. And the weight of our cornerstone's great love similarly crushes the one who will not budge, who will keep acting out the tragic story. But our cornerstone's great love can also be received in humility and repentance. And this always hurts and breaks, but it does not crush. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Repentance brings our broken pieces Offered to the, it brings it back to God. Our broken stories to a God who can join our story to his as he takes broken pieces offered to the builder and makes them the very material he uses to build the rest of the house. Let us not forget that a cornerstone is not a battering ram. A cornerstone is not a stick of dynamite. Battering rams and explosives are not the climactic picture in this story. A cornerstone is. And a cornerstone is a foundation for a house. It's the place where two walls, Jew and Gentile, meet and join, and upon which a building rests. The image of Christ as our cornerstone is thus full of hope at the end of this hard parable. That's a hard parable to hear this morning, isn't it? It's got a lot of killing. It's just not easy to listen to. And yet, if you really look at it, it's full of mercy. All these years, God sends the prophets, and he keeps sending the next one. And then he sends his own son. And then even when the son's killed, that's just a means of greater life. And then the whole house is built up, Jew and Gentile. It's just mercy all through, and it's exactly what they needed to hear. This this issue of the cornerstone, it's an anchor for our hope. I mean, I'll read a couple passages. St. Paul, like, think of this cornerstone and the house being built up stuff. Right from Ephesians 2, listen to these words when when Paul says this. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the next chapter of the parable isn't it? And St. Peter likewise tells his readers, I mean, look at this one. This is a longer passage, but listen to all the same words. Peter and Paul obviously learned this from Christ, and they are using all the same language, and they see how this story ends. Look at this from Peter's letter. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, i.e. grapes. 
For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It's all there. As you come to him, a living stone, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be the very priests, the very tenants God has always desired. The heir, the great high priest Jesus himself, what does he call himself? The true vine. And as we come to him, as we abide in him, we bear that right fruit for God. God will get the fruit from his vineyard because his son, the true heir, went outside the vineyard to die and conquer death and sin and offer himself for us to be joined to him to bear that fruit for God forever. But we must come and kiss the son. It all comes down to that. We must come to the cornerstone and be broken in repentance and built up in God himself. We must abide in that true vine for apart from him, We can do nothing. So let us repent today, right now. Today's the day. It's not just a season of repentance. It's a moment of repentance, each moment, coming to the sun. I want you to close your eyes as we, I'm going to get ready to say a final prayer. And I'm going to to take the chance for this sort of sacred silence in a sacred place. And I'm going to let St. Isaac the Syrian, who's a 7th century saint, I'm going to let him speak of repentance, and I'm going to let his words be our final charge and also our final prayer this morning. Repentance has given us as grace after grace, for repentance is a second regeneration by God. That of which we've received in earnest by baptism, we receive as a gift by means of repentance. Repentance is the door of mercy, open to those who seek it, By this door we enter into the mercy of God, and apart from this entrance, we shall not find mercy. Blessed is God who uses corporeal objects continually to draw us close in a symbolic way to a knowledge of God's invisible nature. O name of Jesus, key to all gifts, open up for me the great door to your treasure house, that I may enter and praise you with the praise that comes from the heart. O my hope, pour into my heart the inebriation that consists in the hope of you. O Jesus Christ, the resurrection and light of all worlds, place upon my soul's head the crown of knowledge of you. Open before me all of a sudden the door of mercies. Cause the rays of your grace to shine out in my heart. O Christ, who are covered with light, as though with the garment who for my sake stood naked in front of Pilate, clothe me with that might which you caused to overshadow the saints, whereby they conquered this world of struggle. May your divinity, Lord, take pleasure in me and lead me above the world to be with you. I give praise to your holy nature, Lord, for you have made my nature a sanctuary for your hiddenness and a tabernacle for your holy mysteries, a place where you can dwell and a holy temple for your divinity. Amen. This was a sermon audio from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church, a community of gospel hope in Fort Collins, Colorado, inviting you to join us around God's table. Find out more online at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.